and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my fellow MI6 colleagues who I'll introduce in just a moment. We're here, of course, for the second episode of the new sub-series, the Bond Daft Podcast, which will cover one of cinema's greatest franchises in cinema history. This is our new film reviews uh, series. We're going to be going through every James Bond film in spoilerific detail. And I'll introduce my colleagues for this next mission. Uh, we tackled previously Dr. No on the last outing, and now we're here for 1963's From Russia With Love. First, my uh, first colleague, he's a man with a plan. He's skilled with a camera, <laughs> cunning with a word processor, <laughs> <laughs> and deadly with a video editing package. It's the Q branch... It's Steve McCall. <laughs> so what you're saying is I can use a computer. I'll take that. <laughs> Quartermaster, Steve. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going for stretching things out here. Um, I'm going to have to try and love, <laughs> keep escalating here. And our second our second colleague, he, uh, let's face it, this we wouldn't be doing this without his his experience. The uh, the wealth of experience this man brings to this project is formidable. I don't know you'd got. Um, oh, I'm talking. What? I'm talking. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were finished. <laughs> Thank you. No, uh, let me. Let me. Uh, I was he's, I he's, you. he's seen many amazing things, and that throughout the series, he's uh, witnessed megalomaniacs with golden guns, henchmen that throw bowler hats, and laser fights in space. It's our Felix Leiter, Gordon Webster. Felix Leiter, that's yeah. Thank, thanks. Great to join you guys once again. I thought you were about to say something like, I've got, um, you know, Timothy Dalton in the show or something like that. Next time I think I'll do it. I'm going to mix it up with my intros, but yeah, next time it'll be the different Bonds. But this time I'm just doing the uh, the, the Friends of Bond, <laughs> your Felix Leiter. Which leads right. us, of course, uh, last but not least, to, you know, he doesn't get to do the much field work, let's say, right? This... The... <laughs> <laughs> he may be in the crusty office, you know, but those files they need to be put away. Those files need to be filed. It's our Miss Money Penny, Francis Murphy. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, the, behind any uh, lethal, uh, cool operation, there is a lot of admin. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was hoping you'd um, pick up on the swerve that was initially going to lead you in as M, but uh, you know, I knew it was going to be something. Some, I knew I, I could feel the swerve coming there. I was pleased, though. I don't mind being Money Penny. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with Money Penny. You're the boss, though, so surely you're um, you're taking charge of us. So I yeah. think we all look up to you as the the M of our cast. Thank you, thank you. But that also M. means there's no bond, which is crazy. Then we <laughs> <laughs> need to go and find our bond. Uh, yeah. So the next episode. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Thank you for it's having us again. To be back. Yeah, and. Um, uh, as much as we had, we had a great time, didn't we, discussing the the music of Bond, Steve? But it's great to have the big guns back again, too. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Yes. Fran, am I right? And Stephen, yeah, we're, we're, we're just the Walter PPKs. Yeah, yeah. The, we've got the assault rifles back. We're back with, back <laughs> with the full. Have ever been described as a big gun before? <laughs> back Quite, with the full uh, artillery today. I've heard clob, but that's <laughs> something completely yeah. different. Uh, yeah, so from Russia with love, this is obviously Bond's second outing, which is fittingly our second main podcast about that. This is obviously, you know, 1963. Am I right in saying that this was only a year after Doctor No then this film came out? 
Yeah, they were yeah. coming out thick and fast in the early days because you've got Doctor No 62, you've got From Russia 63 and Goldfinger 64, and then Thunderbolt 65. It wasn't until 66 they actually took a break. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I, it always amazes me that they were able to do that because these days, you know, you're, you're always usually looking at at least three years between Bond films. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the... I mean, I suppose they realised from the major success of Doctor No that the budget... You know, they doubled the budget, didn't they, for From Russia With Love? Yeah, and it might have just been a case of, you know, striking while the iron's hot, I suppose, getting a new one. There was maybe sort of pressure from the, you know, MGM, the, I don't know if it was MGM, the sort of distributor or whatever, but um, we were starting to see what we call Bond Mania starting to envelop the country, um, main, mainly after From Russia. Once we get to Goldfinger, that was when it really exploded, mm-hmm. but... It was already, obviously, Bond was really popular. The literary Bond from the books by Ian Fleming and Doctor No was... I mean, you, you, I think you guys um, agreed with me that um, it just, it was just such a great way to introduce Bond to the big screen and it kind of... Uh, the Bond from the books uh, brought him to life a lot more. You know, there was a bit of humour and it, it just... Um, it kind of captured the country's imagination at the time, I think. And this this film was a tremendous success. I'd read up on, just very quickly, the box office. It, it sort of was like a £2 million budget, and it made like £78 million at the box office type thing. So as for its time, a 60s, it was essentially a 60s blockbuster, if that what the term wasn't really coined at that point. But um, yeah, I mean... I'm looking forward to this. Uh, you want to quickly give us a rundown of the, the sort of main plot synopsis before we, we go and watch this? A summary, I suppose, of what's what's happening with this film. What I've always loved about From Rush With Love is it, it's a very clever plot. It's an entrapment-style situation involving the... It was the first of many films during the Cold War, um, which sort of pitted the, the Russians against the British, you know, the KGB against SIS, MI6. And um, it there's it's sort of an entrapment involving Spectre, who were introduced to Doctor No, to try and get um Double Seven and the British to steal a decoding device, a very valuable sort of decoding device. Is decoding the word? I don't know. It's called the Lecter. We can check all this stuff. Um, and in the process, sort of humiliate MI Six by um getting them to do it, Spectre, getting the British and Russian to do their dirty work for them, and humiliate, I'm trying not to spoil the plot too much, (laughs) to humiliate MI6 in the process, get them to do their dirty work, and to essentially, as we've seen a lot of films, get the Russian and and British to go into conflict with each other, when really it's Spectre pulling the strings. That's fine, that's a set up really... yeah, Bond gets sent to... He actually gets sent to Istanbul. I don't know if he actually goes to Russia in this film, but the 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 girl who he ends up working with, is she's essentially part of the KGB, Titania. And yeah, a lot of it takes place in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. But it's a different part of the world. Obviously, went to the Caribbean and Doctor No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this will probably feel very different, I imagine, in some ways to Doctor No. Um, but again, this film was before really... They introduced all the flamboyancy of what the Bond series would become, you know, after Goldfinger, essentially. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Okay. With that, I think we've kind of really discussed really the, the essence of what we're about to watch, and we'll come back 
uh, after I've watched the film and go into spoilerific detail. Thank you. Bye-bye. Gordon, are you going to threaten us again? I didn't deliberately sit in your knee there, Miss Moneypenny. I'd rather you shot me the first time than the second time and the third time. I'm not as ruthless as that. HR are already looking into this treatment. Yeah. All right, we're back. Sexual discrimination. (laughs) Are you just going to repeat things you said? We'll get to Roger in in a few... Um, what? couple of years time <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I reckon we worked it out it'll be about three years probably but at the rate we're going at we've all made a very big sure commitment not. here haven't we it's like a sort of polygamous marriage <laughs> in a sense so we are we, bonding brothers I would say as as Gordon said I believe bonded by bond are we changing the name is bonded that what you want by, that, are you pitching the not name quite change blood, but bond aft no anymore. we're not changing no. the name no we had a few good ones lying around but Band of Bonders. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Battle over the mic. Yeah. I like the license to talk. That was my suggestion. But uh, anyways, we're back. We've watched From Russia With Love, uh, our second film, now down. Uh, and what do we think of this one, gents? Gordon, we'll start with you. <laughs> yeah, I was just waiting for when I thought that it was more fresh to you guys. I was giving you guys a chance to start first. Yeah, I mean... I've seen it so many times. I try and take something extra away from it every time I see it. Enjoyed it yet again. It's not. It's easy watching. It's entertaining. It's one of the shortest, if not the shortest, Bond films. I didn't catch I the tried... running time. How much? Was it an hour and a half? I said I didn't catch it. Didn't no, you? I didn't, I didn't check again? the running time. <laughs> yeah, repeat word for word. Actually, exactly what you just said. Yeah. Sorry, what was the question? I mean, we, it's not like we can just go back and play it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did you say, did I check the running time? Yeah, the running time. Um, not today, but I, I remember checking it. It was around about an hour and a half, so films today are usually a bit longer, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, sometimes more too long, usually. Uh, but yeah, you you enjoyed this film, Rewatching it again for the, what, I don't know, must be the 105th time. Oof, yeah. Yeah. How many uh, hours would that be in total? At- well, the hours well spent, so it doesn't matter how long, you know. Well put, well put, my man. Steve, you're completely fresh to this that was, film. Yeah, I knew, like I said, I knew little bits about Doctor No from that film. I knew nothing. I didn't know the plot. I knew nothing. And yeah, it was, again, it was, it's fun. Um, it had a, a lot more going on than the previous one Doctor No was kind of it was all set in one place it was one storyline it was a lot more complex this time around there was lots of bits and pieces you were being introduced to characters um, who I know are going to be recurring over the the next series or the next lot of films um, so it was, you had to pay a little bit more attention to it but it was you know it was fun you got to the end and you thought you know what yeah that was enjoyable yeah, yeah, I agree. I completely agree. It certainly was. There was a lot more moving parts to this film. Yeah, uh, more more characters and and ones that are obviously more significant to the franchise going forward. It was. Well, I was the sort the first time in Bond. I suppose we're only two films in, but where I thought, right, which one's that again? And you have to you have to properly remember and remembering who's on what side as well, because it was only about two thirds of the film through that I realised, oh, hang on, that's right, they're working for them, not them. And it does, yeah. It does keep you on your toes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. How I feel, Fran. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. Um, I, I sort of pointed out a couple of times while watching it. It's it's really interesting to compare the the film, uh, the style of the film to the films that we see nowadays. It's very very different. I find it quite refreshing. Um, it was 
it really felt like Bond was travelling and going places that were different and, and seeing parts of cultures that were completely different and you know, it may be something that would be harder to achieve nowadays, but I, I particularly enjoyed that aspect of the film. I imagine audiences would have been... I mean, these places will be unusual for the audiences as well. We're talking, mm-hmm. obviously, early 60s. People weren't mm-hmm. as well-travelled. No one going to the cinema on an average day will probably have any clue what Istanbul, perhaps not even Venice, were like, mm-hmm. as yeah, both locations you saw in the film. Mm-hmm. So it's it's taking the audience places as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the gypsy camp scene, that was a, a new thing. I think it was a unique thing for... Bond, I don't recall him ever being in that kind of social environment in a later film. You know, a very different kind of group of people to what he'd be used to mm-hmm. uh, back in London. Yeah. And um, it was the fact, and so he went there with um, Karen Bay, who's the head of his station T or whatever, one of the MI6 contacts in, in Istanbul. So he spends a lot of the film with him. Um, Karen introduced him to these characters, and there's these two girls um, who are the key that's the centerpiece in the gypsy camp who are actually fighting over this man they both love this man they're willing to kill each other and you just think this is really brutal stuff how are they actually going to kill each other just kind of bare bare knuckle fighting these two girls and of course the the bulgarians who are after karen bay as a wee subplot they turn up and they bring that to a halt they just start shooting everybody that was a mad scene. It was, that was I. I did think, what is going on here at that point? That got slightly confusing. Was there was there a purpose in that, or was that just gratuitous? Yeah, I, well, I think the entire scene was laid out just to show that white-haired guy defending Bond. Yeah, basically. that's see, that's it's not so obvious. Sometimes the you know the subtle things are the best, and there was a few short scenes where um, Red Grant, who we'll get to in a minute, played by Robert Shaw, is the assassin working for Spectre. Who he's is the white-haired up, guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I would say like blonde, but yeah, quite kind of whitey blonde. He's, like, he's up in this alcove, and he's you think he's going to shoot Bond. This is an enemy. He's going to kill Bond. But he's defending him. There's a guy about to stick a knife into Bond's back, and he shoots him, and then he shoots another guy. Uh, so that's a really interesting part, and just the fact um, the Bulgarians are actually after Karen Bay. They're not after Bond. Bond's just caught up in the madness, but and this isn't actually part of his mission, but he's like still on Karen Bay's side, and he's taking out some of these Bulgarians with his Walther and like throwing knives and um, setting things in fire and shit. So. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> mad. And the or, thing is, it is like a game of chess. That's the thing, because one of the Spectre guys was a, a some sort of grandmaster chess player and he'd been brought in to create this plan um for how to to for, for Spectre to get a hold of this uh, code breaking machine or code making machine or whatever mm-hmm. it was but the plot itself was like a chess game because there was feints and there was um uh, distraction tactics and there was double layers to the the scheme that was yeah. exactly what someone who plays chess would that's the kind of plan they would come up with yeah, so it wasn't as straightforward as Doctor No. That's what I said at the beginning I liked about it. It's a well-thought-out plot. It came straight from Fleming himself. It wasn't something that was uh, created by the you know the screenwriters. This was a, an Ian Fleming idea. And it, essentially, the British and Soviet um, secret services were pawns in a game coordinated by Spectre. So this guy, Kronstein, who was the chess player at the start, he really uh, works for Spectre and he had this elaborate plot collaborating with Rosa Klebb, um, who is, you know, she's sort of like the chief villain, chief, like villainess of the film. And it's actually coordinated this. The first time we see Ernst Stavro Blofeld, you don't actually see him, his face. You see his hands, you see his, his white cat. 
which he's stroking repeatedly. Is that and the first instance of, I mean, the, the bad guy stroking the cat is like the ultimate almost comedy villain. It's it's copied, it's been copied so much over the last sort of 50 years. Is that Inspector is that, Gadget is what I'm thinking of when I see yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it went back to Austin Powers, but I think it, there's hundreds of it. Is that, is that the first instance of bad guy stroking a white cat? Yeah, in a film, yeah. In, it didn't happen in Doctor No, did it? Yeah, no. but um, that we were talking oh. earlier. The um, it does kind of is in some ways it's a sequel to Doctor No because Doctor No worked for Spectre, yeah. and they did say in, I mean, in that meeting at the start that this plan was partly to avenge the killing of Doctor No. Oh, the film certainly is a direct sequel to Doctor No in a way that is different from how most other Bond films going forward. A lot of them don't feel quite like there's an element. Did the film previous actually happen? It's you know there's no clear continuity yeah because that's time. like you know but for this example film, like we were talking about the white cat thing you mentioned Steve certainly as far as I'm aware that is the first sort of cinematic uh, kind of picture of that kind of evil villain yeah. stroking the white cat I, I don't I can't think of anything that, before that that is iconic mm. that is to see the first instance of that is something quite special I think yeah and I think that's funny to see where that's came from now especially yeah. you've probably noticed from Austin Powers and I, I, you know the Pink Panther or whatever and all these other things cartoons cartoons, cartoons do it yes, constantly yes so now to see I think we might be talking rubbish there might be something that's preceded this and then I've not picked up on it but I think this is the origin of that kind of imagery yeah I don't know if the cat was in the Fleming novels but um, certainly Blofeld was his creation but this was the first cinematic um, This the, the visual portrayal of Blofeld in this villain with a, a white cat which is of course very iconic and yeah you were talking so I mean like I, I keep stating you know I like the continuity with Bond so there was a slight continuation with Doctor No and you touched upon Steve there's a lot of Bond films there's so many it's like the previous film didn't even happen it's almost like a like a reboot so that like for example on Her Majesty's Secret Service into Dimes Are Forever it just totally disregards a lot on Her Majesty's which you know um, which irritates me a bit. I'm looking so forward that, to when we do that because I can sense every time Diamonds Are Forever comes up, you start clenching your fists. I can't, do you know? I can't even say. Did I even say the name? I said Diamonds Are Forever. But yeah, okay. So this film, obviously, um, we, there's many, many things that we can touch on. What should we tackle first? We've obviously mentioned, you know, it's, it's, it's a much more wide-spanning story, um, much more... The budget was increased for this film, doubled at least. Yeah, about it, double, yeah. It went over budget, as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah, I think that was part of the reason they had to... They ended up filming a lot of the scenes in Scotland laterally, that which was, actually were quite effective. Yeah, I liked that. It was good seeing, again, some Scottish scenery. Um, Not that you'd know it from the credits, because it, it, it said, filmed on location in Istanbul... And England, yeah. at Pinewood Studios. Yeah, There's no the... mention of mm-hmm. anywhere. I mean, Venice was potentially a projected backdrop. That might not have been there. But that was 100% definitely parts of the Highlands of Scotland. It's very rude of them not to acknowledge using our land. You wouldn't get away with that today. It's like you thought maybe it was too Scottish with Shawnee <laughs> Boy, you know, in charge... For you any, think, you know, you the think with John had. Connery in the role, that would be something they would try and get right, you know. But I suppose the British character in the end, to be fair, to Connery, I think he does sound. There's certain lines he sounds very Scottish in the series, but for a lot of it, you know, there is a slight kind of upper class English um, accent to him. It's not. I wouldn't say it's too blatantly Scottish. Where you hear it blatantly Scottish is like the end of Doctor No. All right then, give us a toe, you know, with Felix Leiter at the end. But it, I think it, you can, he's believable as this slightly upper class English. I was listening to it in this film and trying to decipher what 
accent it was really. I mean, it's Sean Connery, which is kind of, yeah, it's his, I don't know, it is a Scottish accent, but it's certainly not a strong Scottish no. accent in the film anyway. I think he will, he'll understand the character and he'll know that James Bond is someone who will have gone, he'll have been you know, targeted at universities, most of the MI6 agents back then were the good unis, Ox, Oxbridge and whatnot, so he'll know the kind of background that James Bond would have, so I imagine that will kind of influence his way of speaking mm-hmm. for the most part, but doesn't matter how hard you hide it your accent always comes out slightly so there will be bits and pieces where he'll have kind of slipped back into his actual accent i think did you notice the little war between the the two well obviously bond's not an assassin but when he was um in the room what's the guy's name red the guy that robert shop was the uh-huh. assassin red grant red grant yeah so red grant's got bond um with his hands up on his knees and um, Bond sort of teases him about not being able to pick the right wines to go with the dinner and um, Red Grant is annoyed by this and it's as if there's a little bit of the classicism in there that, yep. mm. that, that maybe Red Grant feels a little bit, I don't know, he's got a chip on his shoulder about it, you could tell that Bond was coming from the upper crust mm. there I never picked up on that, that's interesting Red wine yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, I think it also that was Bond smelling a rat and a normal English gentleman working mm-hmm. for MI6 would not order um, fish with red wine, you know, that's a, a not a strange combination. It'd be white wine, so I think he'd smell a rat with that. I did think though that why does Bond give up? He, he sort of like he's holding the gun up to the guy, and then he's like, "Let me just show you this," and then he sort of just he lets that, yeah, it was a lets his guard down. It's like that doesn't seem like he would do that. In the and in the book, Bond berates himself for that. So it's good. It shows you know Bond's flaws. He can get caught off guard occasionally, mm-hmm. but the the way that. I really liked the way that um, Robert Shaw's villain was silent for a good two thirds of the film, and then he he goes into he he takes the life of the um, the other MI six contact I think in Zagreb, assumes his identity, puts on this upper class English accent, and he is in disguise as him. And uh, it, it's I like the way eventually his true identity is revealed. And uh, but yeah, it did seem a bit kind of weak of Bond. He just says, "I can explain it better on a map," and he gets the map out, and Bond kind of kneels down and just forgets about it. So, like, I'm no MI6 agent, but I just it, I could see that one coming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's I think it, I, I was like, really, really, really. But yeah, I suppose it shows it because otherwise, if you don't put a few little flaws in there, then Bond effectively becomes a superhero, which he's not. He's a he's a guy. Exactly. True. So true. it's nice to throw a few then, and every so often you go, oh, he cocked up there. Yeah. What I liked as well is Grant was employed basically to take out Bond, and he's kind of shutting this little compartment on the Orient Express with Bond at gunpoint, and he takes that he didn't have to do this, but he, he takes advantage of the situation for his own personal sort of ego to explain to Bond exactly how he's been played and tell Bond the whole plot, which all he has to do is kill him, but he takes great pleasure in telling Bond how much of a fool he's been, how he's protected him along this whole um, sequence of events in Istanbul. He tells him how he'll be shot, he says it'll be slow and painful, and he says I can, you know, he's basically saying Spectre, I've ordered me to kill you, they don't know how I'm going to kill you, I can kill you by any means I want, you know, and he's taking real play, and you can tell he's a he's a real professional, he's a real cold hard bastard really, you see the start of the film, he's getting his massage he gets introduced to Rosa Klebb she gets out this knuckle duster and whacks him in the stomach and he doesn't feel a thing so that's, so this was before Odd Job, you know, 
he's a strong silent villain, nothing hurts him, you know. So this was a sign of things to come as well, this strong um this silent villain. He doesn't speak to the end of the film and you know, he's he's almost superhuman in a way. And he also like a lot of maybe not so much villains, but you know, key bond henchmen. He has his own little personal gadget or personal um trait, similar to like Jaws of his metal teeth or job of his is um, steel rimmed hat, you know. Grant is the the watch Garrett, so a bit more sort of you know Spartan compared to the the later you know attributes that these villains had. But you know, it's, it was it gave him that little something. Maybe some villains were just kind of bland; they just could have stood there looking tough. But he actually had this little uh, gadget, you know. Do you think that he is the the kind of character that would have gone on to inspire, say, um? like the Terminator and things like that. This whole idea of this silent stalking force coming after you that just does not relent. Yeah, and where is effective? The word stalking's good because he stalks Bond. Like, you think he's there to kill him, but you see him in the mosque. You see him um, looking at the window of the Owned Express on the platform. You see him in the gypsy camp. He's, he's overseeing things to protect Bond and make sure that Bond survives. And then all so that he can eliminate him in the train. So I think that's really effective. Oh, and yeah. the the, dark, the the light as well and the music, you know, the, the steel drums coming boom, boom, boom and stuff like that. Um, the timing of it really works. It gives him this menacing factor. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he was a formidable um, villain. And I suppose because it's different from Doctor No in the sense that we, we didn't really get a lot of scenes in the previous film with Doctor No. It was kind of towards the end, really. Some tension was built, but this film, obviously, we were seeing a lot of the villains, um, and especially uh, Robert Shaw's character. I think it, it, you touched on it at the very end. We'll cut to the very end here. Well, this, uh, the, the last scene was... Well, not the last scene, but the sort of last fight, I suppose, with Rosa Klebb's character felt a bit anticlimactic a little. Do you that feel? It was over and done with very quickly, and it kind of came out of nowhere. It, it did feel rushed, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it was the last couple of minutes of the film. That could have... That could be in a whole other storyline almost, but they obviously she got shot, and that was kind of that was that. Yeah, but that that's where like tight editing and and, and things like Steve, um, you've mentioned that we were watching the film about the editing wasn't so great in some in, in some parts, and I think there are you see this with older films. Me and Steve have seen it with the Star Trek films. That the older ones, you'll have sequences that are maybe longer than they would be in modern films, and maybe longer than they should be. Like the the gypsy camp with the dancing scenes, and that's going on and on and on. You know, and and it's nice to watch, but an editor nowadays maybe would have looked at that and said, "Let's cut some of that dancing and have a bit more of that that fight scene at the end." You know, that that maybe they've they've stacked it heavily in some areas that maybe they wouldn't do nowadays. Well, you can tell that they were they were absolutely editing with tape, physical mm-hmm. tape back then. It would be mm-hmm. a man in a dark room with a knife, uh-huh. which obviously with computers today, editing is so easy. You can mm-hmm. take bits out, you can undo. You know, control. They don't have control Z back then. Mm-hmm. If you cut something in their own place, that's it. That's that's mm-hmm. gone. That's destroyed. That's a good point. And there was a, there were there was a lot of jump cuts and bits where it went. Um, even within scenes itself, and you thought, "Hang on, why did that switch?" It's obviously kind of cut something out, mm-hmm. which it's. I mean, at the time, that's probably just how the films were made. But to a modern eye, you do watch and go, "Whoa, what? Why? Why did that cut there?" Yeah, quite jarring. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, but I'm not. I can't criticize 1960s editing because I mean that's a skill that no one has these days. It's quite cool. Oh, uh, it's it's an interesting point you've made. Some of the the action scenes a little were. That's I, I, probably what I noticed. It, it was just thing. It was a lot of the camera would flip, and it was kind of unsure what what was the the actor doing. Also, some of the, just the. I think it was the over over the top sort of very nineteen sixties the way people fired a gun. It was like that. It looked like a western a little, like it's the kind of over the, the top camps, Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'm thinking of in the uh, the action scenes. But again, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a film in nineteen sixty three. This is this is what you're going to notice with these films. What I'm also beginning to notice, kind of on that particular within the action scenes, is that it's that particular Bond gun noise. It's I I can't describe I think without physically doing it. But it's like a <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. you notice it, I, I mean, I think I first noticed it in the N64 version of Goldeneye, because uh -huh. the exact same noise like is in it. like the ricocheting bullet noise. Yes, it's yeah, exactly that. that. Yeah. I was thinking It was that. in the first yeah. film, it's in this noise. film, and I think, I'm, I think I'm going to, I think we're going to see that in every film, I've got that kind yeah. of instinct. I don't think I've heard it in anything else, or at no. least I don't remember it. It's a very James, it's a particularly it James Bond sound, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but it does make me think of Goldeneye as well, like of running away from Steve when we're playing um, in the archives, and that bullet just misses you, and you, that's what you hear, isn't it? Yeah, it's that yeah. noise. Yeah, uh, how we touched on in previously in the last podcast, now this is probably a subject that will come up a lot, we don't have to go into it as much detail, but and, and we're talking about how Bond is dated and sort of effects, we'll also talk about where Bond is dated from this sort of point of view of the modern audience, you know, the sexism and things like that. It wasn't maybe quite as as bad, uh, would you say, in this no, one? No, I, I, I did pick up on it. Bond seemed a lot more respectful, I think, in this one. Compared to Dr. Noe, there are still elements where, you know, he does hit women quite a bit. I, I almost wrote into my notes, ah, Bond is more respectful. <laughs> and then he slapped... Um, Tanya. Tanya, yeah, I don't Oh, okay, yeah. Do you know, but, the, the thing is, though, right, it's a difficult one with, with physical violence because she's a spy, he's a spy. And, you know, and, and like, where, where do you draw the line of equality? Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, he's much bigger and stronger than she is and you shouldn't attack people. But at the same time, she's big enough and ugly enough and in a, in a profession where, I don't know, like, is that a sign of equality in itself that, that that took place. It's that, more the imagery, I think, is, is something that's it's just seeing a man in the power position, you know. I think uh, the fact that she flounced down and went, oh, or whatever, like say she'd fought back or something and they had a bit of a scuffle, that maybe be more... Yeah, she didn't, she seemed completely subject, uh -huh. you know, she didn't... I think uh, for um, most of the film, I think Tatiana, or Tanya's her name's shortened to, um, played by Daniela Bianchi, who I think was Italian, um, she's very much the sort of damsel in distress Bond girl but later on there's a couple of stronger moments because first of all when um, Spectre confront the two of them on the speedboat filmed in Scotland um, he, Bond kind of puts his hands up while he grabs a flare gun but she instinctively just kind of grabs the wheel of the boat makes the boat accelerate kind of anticipating what he's going to do which was kind of quite a cool thing which potentially saved his life and then of course she saves his life at the end you know Rosa Klebb's got him at gunpoint and you think that's it for him. And, you know, she's test, uh, Rosa Klebb's testing her loyalty. You know, you're working for Mother Russia, but, um, she's obviously kind of fallen for Bond and you're wondering how she's going to play it. But she kind of pushes the door into Klebb. So Bond is that sex. She anticipates that obviously the Bond's going to try and, you know, 
get out of this and so she saves Bond's life as one of you guys touched on the film but you know right at the end yeah well, it's, it's an interesting one because what is it they call it again there's a term for when women are put in films and they're basically just there to further the story what's it called oh, again yeah, that's um, fridging or something fridging. right so mm, like a woman will then be killed like for that to, or, or, or there's other versions of this I suppose but it didn't feel like that was her job like she was very she was she was fundamental to the plot you know, she was being used. What was interesting was that her and Bond were both being used and didn't realise until a certain point. See, Bond, Bond um, and he knew this was a trap. He just didn't know how it was a trap. Remember, he's his briefing by ML in the film. He says, M says, well, obviously it's a trap. They know it's a trap, but Bond's just trying to anticipate uh-huh. how he's. But the British, of course, treat a trap as a challenge. And well, that's I- the trap, isn't it? That's the weird thing, is that the trap itself. Uh, Which yeah, is, that's kind of what part of what makes the film for me, just this elaborate. Um, trap. It's not as straightforward a mission for Bond. Do you know? Actually, I think I think Daniela Bianchi was dubbed for this film, similar to Ursula Andress and Doctor. I'll need to double check. I'm pretty sure she was dubbed, but it's amazing the amount of dubbing there was for Eng- actually English speaking actors and actresses in the first. You know, certainly in all the Connery era Bond films, which you just would not have guessed because it's it's so brilliantly edited. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that. she was dubbed. I think maybe just because her accent sounded too Italian or something. I wouldn't. Certainly, I would never picked up on that. No, I will check that. I'm, I know for a fact Ursula Andress was was dubbed, and uh, I'm trying to think. There'll be other examples we'll we'll come across, like the bad the the main bad guy of Thunderball, for example, which and Goldfinger. We'll, we'll get to that in the next podcast. But there was there was a lot of um, dubbing in the earlier Bond films, uh, but it was so well edited, you just wouldn't have guessed. Well, sorry, what was the the actor's name, the one we were talking about, where he played the character that obviously tragically died? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't um, why, but what's his name, the actor? Well, Pedro Armendariz, Pedro, he, so he played Karen Bay. He was Bond's contact in Istanbul, and he had a lot of screen time. He spent a lot of the film with him, and he's, he's, one, of the most, he's one of the most memorable... For, I mean, I, I sometimes think, as you know, just as a kind of retrospective of the whole series, he's one of the... The out of all the Bond allies, like he's one of the most memorable, the most charming, and you really do. For me, you feel real pain when he gets killed by Grant on the train. Yeah, yeah the guy and the the actor was dying of cancer, wasn't he? Yeah, I was reading about this before the film, and and then having that knowledge actually changes a little bit, probably perception of the character a little. Just knowing what the actor's going through, I think he was diagnosed with a. Uh, with cancer, it was terminal, it was inoperable, and uh, I think some of the shooting of the ske- the schedule was actually moved to try and coincide with to make it easier for him. Um, as far as I'm aware from my reading of it, I might be wrong on that. And uh, after he'd finished his part, uh, tragically, he actually took his own life. So I think that had happened even before the film was actually officially released. If if I'm if I've read that correctly, which I is think Steve, really, it was really about sad. halfway through the filming. Yeah. What, yeah. he killed himself? Yeah. I think I read that he killed himself in the June and the film came out later in the year. And there's still a lot of filming to do and there was this real sombre atmosphere with the, mm. the crew, obviously, which, I mean, imagine that. Well, maybe that's why... Trying to make a film. Maybe that's why it felt rushed towards the end. Maybe it was just... I mean, it could have affected everybody's mood in the production. There was also, I think, explo- one of the... The, the stunts went wrong I think there was a stuntman I don't know if he was killed or injured but as well I'd read oh, passing yeah. I should have was that with a helicopter in Scotland I, I imagine it was that scene if you're gonna yeah that's See, a dangerous you know dangerous stunt for the film incredible scene actually um, you can tell where the budget has went 
in some ways, I suppose, from the first film for the, the, the sort of stunt scenes were much grander. There was more of them as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think I think Terence Young, the director, this was so that's why I think there's a similar style between this and Doctor No, and it's a more realistic style of Bond films. He was the director, and I, I believe he was actually flying this helicopter scouting locations in the west coast of Scotland and the helicopter crashed into the water and he was underwater and somebody had to dive in and save him so I, was that what you were thinking of? Possibly that I, definitely I, happened you know, uh, yeah god it's it's incredible some of this stuff yeah so I mean I, overall I really like this film this is probably the film that's the last of the really gritty spy espionage thriller that before it gets starts to get a bit more comedic and flashy and things like that. This is the first time Q was in the film as well. It was his first first of Q, that was interesting. Yeah, he's, <clears throat> you can tell how it gets much grander as the films go because what he presented Bond with was, it was just a briefcase. I mean, there was a lot going on. There was the knife in the side, there was the talcum powder, there was the... What was was it? Wasn't talcum powder that exploded in Red's face on the train? Was it? Was that that was that looked like some kind of? It was tear gas, but it was disguised as a talcum powder. That'll be container. what I was thinking of. Yes, all very elaborate. And could you imagine if that happened in your own house? It would be annoying. Tear gas instead of talcum powder. <laughs> it's just I think it was the logistics of the briefcase. It was the the between it being armed and unarmed. Was a sort of tweaking of the little bits that I would—I know instinctively—I'd forget which way around it was. It was yeah. If it was vertical, it's off. But if it's horizontal, then it's armed. I would immediately walk out of that room and go, "Which one was which again?" Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Is, and he didn't even test it properly. You know, did it once. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But Bonds—that's good because Fleming's Bonds aren't meant to have an exceptional memory, mm. so he wouldn't need another briefing. No. Yeah, um, I like that. It was good seeing Q, and obviously knowing you know what's we know how his his character will I suppose they'll be he'll be in every appearance then from up until I think is the world is not enough yeah I think well apart for for an absolutely silly disgraceful reason he didn't get in live and let die at all we'll come to that later down the line but he was in every other Bond film and we do see a shift the the absolutely superb chemistry between Bond and Q the humour you'll see that gets developed that was a an idea with a new director who took a hold of Goldfinger but Terence Young was the director for uh, Doctor No from Rush With Love which hence I see why there's a similar style you know it could actually happen this was something in the spy world it wasn't like a, a massive nuclear bomb that's going to blow up a city you know it was something that could that could actually happen. Nobody would know. It made me think of some of the stuff that's happened in the last couple of years. You know, the poison situation in mm. Salisbury. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it, obviously there was no definite culprit, I suppose, wasn't there? But Supposedly. Yeah. If we, you see that TV interview, then you, you kind of get an impression. Those two tourists that yeah. happen to love cathedrals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's quite a timely film to watch, actually, because the whole thing between Britain and Russia has flared up again particularly over the last couple of years which is I think why there's elements of this that, that do feel slightly familiar and I, I get the impression that the Bond films do almost represent the political feelings of the time because that's what the audience that's what we in the audience's mind but yeah it is interesting because some of the later Bond films started to touch on things like terrorism and cyber terrorism whereas maybe it's it could be swinging I, I don't know what the new one's going to be about but maybe it's going to go back more towards this sort of almost Cold War type of idea. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. if Bond's gonna, if there's gonna be another torture scene with Bond. There wasn't one in this film exactly, but there's been a few. Mm. He's been shoved in, you know, an ice bath. He's these bollocks whipped by Le Chiffre. He's a laser trying to divide him in half. Just the next film. How about he just in a you know a blazing hot day like this? He just has to you know like sit in Steve's conservatory. He just give, <laughs> he just give away all the secrets. Yeah. And you know, do you expect me to talk? No, I expect you to fry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. Come that on, would be it. You know, I would, I, I would just give away everything. You that know, punishment and a half. Yes, <laughs> this conservatory. We're, we're quite hot in this room, aren't we? I know. So, I love the escalation and the torture there, Gordon. When you went through the list, what was the list again? <laughs> There's more. But how? What, how did you f- f- choose that list? So, what was it? It started out with. Ice bath. Ice bath, then getting his bollocks whipped, then a laser divider in Manhattan. <laughs> I don't mean necessarily like, well in terms placed, of, you know, descending or ascending order, just, you know, <laughs> examples. I would, that's, I, that's the order I would choose. This is why I couldn't be Bond, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> don't like ice baths. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind an ice shower, but... <laughs> Where is this? Moral choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where I was going with that earlier, uh, mentioning Q, uh, the, the other staples of Bond, things like, was the... Shaken not stirred line in this film. I don't think he had a drink in this, apart from the wine on oh, the yeah. train. I don't and think he had a drink. Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. I, I don't think there was a My Name's Bond, James Bond in this. You're right. No, there wasn't. But those would have been... Those were in Doctor No, but I, I believe, but they wouldn't have been perceived to be... Of course, yeah. ...big things yet. It's only later on, I suppose, that they would... If they happened again. Yeah, it's not like an audience was crying out saying, why didn't they... You know, it was only one mm-hmm. film before that. So I suppose maybe... I'm assuming Goldfinger will bring it back. And then, you know, it starts to become a thing. Did you notice... Um, did you feel there was a slight bit more humour involved yes. compared to Doctor yes, No? Yes, I did game. laugh a few times in that, yes. Um, me and Em had some experience in Tokyo and Em's like, no, put the tape off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's good chemistry between Bond and Em. he throws the hat... Um, on the hat trick. stand, and for my next miracle, and, and M just gives him this cold look, and just <laughs> je- he doesn't even say anything to me. He just kind of gestures, get in my office now. No, yeah, definitely. There, there was a, a, a bit more humour in this film, I think. I mean, was Do- I mean, I suppose Doctor No was relatively humourless in a sense. It was straight up. It was played very film. straight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not that this film was laugh out loud gags, but those little moments do alleviate the tension because it is a lot of like tension building up between the different factions and things try to work out the, the, the plot as well it's, yeah it was good to have that levity a wee bit absolutely the, the room of mi6 high hegens listening to the tape with um tanya sort of occasionally oh make love to me <laughs> that was that was yeah, a great right. scene actually yes <laughs> yeah exactly exactly uh yeah i mean i think we've kind of covered most of the the areas Is there anything else you can think of that you, any scenes you want to, to to really pick apart i think i need to give another honorable mention to another bond villains lair type thing i mm. mean this one it had nothing on dr no and his danger wheel but <laughs> what i enjoyed this time there was that one scene where I, i'm trying to remember i think I'm trying to remember if it was Tanya being walked through just a kind of outdoor grassy area and there was just all sorts of sort of villainous stuff going on. There was someone... Oh, the training with the flamethrowers there was, and all that. There was someone with a flamethrower. There was someone practicing karate chopping a block oh, of wood yeah, in half. There were wrestlers yeah. on the floor. There yeah. was someone with a semi someone topless with a semi-automatic weapon shooting stuff. It was every possible <laughs> sort of villainous bad way to kill someone going on in one place. <laughs> I didn't know they had like one particular. It was like an academy for I for how to be a, a hitman. For this, <laughs> <laughs> the local council. Yeah, I thought I was just a pattern. <laughs> machine gun nest. 
I love that. It was amazing though. It was it was so over the top and it was almost like a walkthrough and you were thinking, when's this going to end? Yeah, exactly. How much more extreme is this going to get? How how far does it end? That's not the more Gardens I remember. (laughs) (laughs) A different school trip. It was a lot more exciting. Uh, yeah, no, that you're right. That that really was great. And some the, the, the other stuff, the settings as well. That big was it a temple or the the sort of what was oh, that? Saint Sophia's. Yeah, yeah, that was that um, was quite cool. Give me a bit of history on that. All right, it's not called Saint Sophia's anymore, and it wasn't at the time. That was obviously some sort of historical tour. It, um, it used to be Saint Sophia's when it was controlled by the um, Eastern Roman Empire. I think it was called because the Roman Empire split in two. And Constantinople is what Istanbul used to be called. Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, and Rome was the capital of the Western Roman Empire, all the way up until an Islamic invasion took place, and they took over the city and renamed it Istanbul, and turned St. Sophia's into a mosque, a big giant mosque, which is why there was Islamic signs inside it, green ones with Islamic writing. I can't remember what they called it at the time, um, but it still remains, obviously, it's in Turkey, it remains under... Islamic rule to this day. I think it was about 600, 700 years ago. Maybe maybe longer, but something like that. Well, thank you that for yeah. that story. I read a book about it ages ago. It just happens to be... Yeah, you just been yeah. wanting to get that out. That's, yeah. You finally found a use well, for that information. That's why I joined the Bond podcast. so Because I knew that this would happen. It's like a plan of the chess player in the film. Apparently that was a, a famous move that that guy did. To find, I was reading about that. Um... At the the movie. Oh yeah, it's yeah. like an actual famous move in some chess final tournament. Yeah, that's like the that's like the Cruyff Turner. You know that that's <laughs> the Cruyff Turner <laughs> or the the um the hand of God or something. That I that that was a, an absolutely yeah. world class move. And knowing nothing about chess, I watching it until I read about it, I had no idea what he'd done. You know, I kind of want to play a bit of chess now. Actually, yeah, me don't too. Know, don't know what that says about me. And then you have this little glass put down your table. I liked how it had the wee spectre octopus. And you know, all the times I've seen this film, I never noticed that till today. The little spectre octopus logo on the the little coaster under the glass. It says you are required at once. I didn't actually pick up on that. I did see a little logo. I couldn't quite work out what it was, but so this octopus is presumably something. Does this come up again? Aye, and I noticed yeah. also Blofeld is a spectre ring. This is the thing. See, when you get your Blu-rays, Steve, think what kinds of things I'm going to pick up then. I mean, that was looking at the... That's the pre-remastered version. And we're all going to pick up so much stuff once we see in blue. We'll be like, pause, pause, freeze, freeze. You know, like a grain of dust. I know. <laughs> look at the, you know, all the extras. I even, yeah. there's a couple of extras I noticed, which we're I'd talking about Blu-ray as if it's just been a new thing that's been For released. me, it is. Listen, man, I'm from Dunoon. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm so on <laughs> <laughs> They've just got telephones there. <laughs> I know you're a bit claustrophobic being inside a house, but you'll be used to it. Oh dear. <laughs> right, oh, okay. Uh, is there any favourite scenes we have then that comes to mind? Anything, any particular moment you feel is the moment you'll fran? You really want to yeah. see I liked the bit where the um, the girl got ready to give him a massage and had the really weird underwear on. <laughs> and, I was worried where you were going to go with that there for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, it looked a little dated. Yeah, it just it, it amused me. I don't even know why she had to get undressed to do it. And he didn't bat an eyelid, did he? No. In fact, he just he never even. I don't know. What was it you said, Gordon? That character in the the book that character gives him a massage every day or something. Yeah. So Red Red Grant, the the Spectre assassin, has been getting a massage. Well, I don't think every day, maybe like once every week. And um, she was just a like hired hand for Spectre. 
she wasn't allowed to really speak to this guy. If she asked him any questions about what he did, she would be dead. And I remember Fleming said in the text, he said, oh, what was it again? He said... If she asked any questions, he would no, kill her or something? Um, he had been going to her for two years or something, and in that two years, a single word, he just lied with his face down in the grass, and he gave out these long, shuddering yawns every so often and said, do you know the other thing that struck me? Do you remember when um, when Rosa Klebb um, is, is meeting Tanya to give her orders for a mission, which Tanya presumes she's just doing this for Mother Russia. She doesn't realise she's doing it as, as a pawn for Spectre. There's kind of lesbian tendencies from, from Rosa Klebb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they went a bit further with that in the novel apparently and so she kind of strokes Tanya's hair a bit in the novel it said she actually kind of like dressed up and put on all this weird makeup and it said and Ian Fleming typical Fleming says like she looked like the world's ugliest whore god (laughs) (laughs) oh wow yeah uh... she was I think Rosa Klebb's a great character and she was she was a very kind of sinister evil looking woman apparently Lottie Lenya who plays her in real life was this lovely woman who was, you know, a singer and, you know, was at um, Russia or wherever she came from, but, you know, there was a few um, kind of, there was a few villainesses in later Bond films that were almost a template for her. She really set the standard. She, um, the way she looked, the way she, she stared. I suppose that was the first Bond villain, a female villain, isn't it? Was yeah, because there's not, I wouldn't say there's a, a big kind of, like, head chief villain master plan guy Blofeld's kind of behind the scenes for most of the mm. film it's a kind of concoction that's probably why it felt anticlimactic because you know we know that Blofeld really is the main villain but he's not even there or anything like that um, so maybe that was why that was an element of it one of the clever things in the earlier Bond films is they didn't just swing the camera to Blofeld showing his face right away this is Blofeld it gradually built up You saw, in this film you saw his hands you saw him stroking the cat, you heard his voice, but you didn't actually see his face. Yeah, they kept the mystery for the next film, and even having a question mark for the actor. Yeah, they kept in the they credits. Didn't reveal yeah, in the credits. That was, that's that's going to keep audiences hanging on for the 60s. That's quite a clever way, I think, of of bringing those, um, those audiences back again and keeping mm-hmm. them hanging. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although the poor actor, of course, going uncredited, it was, you know stroking the cat and it was a lot of work he was putting into the, that the cat probably got more of a credit than he did <laughs> yeah. apparently it's real the, the cat had a name I think it was Solomon but I don't know how people arrived at that conclusion I don't know if it was written into the script and somehow it got leaked or whatever but it seems an odd name for a cat what do you make of the beginning of the film um, I suppose we've got the, the title sequence but we even had uh, a, a sort of Bond, well, it's obviously a fake out. You think it's Bond that's kind of been pursued by Robert Shaw's character, and then it turns oh, out yeah. it's not really yeah, well. Yeah, the mask, yeah, yeah the most Creepy realistic mask. mask ever. Yeah, it was like technology beyond what anybody could possibly imagine. And the best part of that is pulling the mask off, and then a few seconds later, just kind of fades into the you know yeah. the from Russia with Love title sequence. Mm-hmm. Really love that. Again, you've not actually seen Bond for real at that point. Yeah, we haven't. And it's probably a good, what, 10, 15 minutes, though, really, before he enters the film. I suppose that was similar to Doctor No a little. It took a while before they actually introduced him. The the, the initial theme, I like that as well. And the, yeah, the sort of first imagery. title sequence with mm-hmm. Dancing Bond Girl. Yeah, which... yeah, established the trend that will continue yeah. until... Bond women. 
Oh yeah, there is. I read it in an article. Mm-hmm. Is it? Oh, is Bond Woman now? It's changed because um, I think I don't think it's a recent thing. I think it was two or three films ago on the set. Um, I think went round that that's how it would be referred to from now on. So we have to we have to put that in the notes somewhere. The woman okay. Bond. Um, we, we will need to dedicate a few good few podcasts to that. Maybe more to the woman of Bond. That would work. But yeah, I enjoyed the the low budgetness of it was just a it was clearly a woman dancing in front of an overhead projector where the credits were rolling, which is just it's I, I do love an overhead projector in fairness, but it's I, I do love that it's kind of it's rustic and um yeah it's a sort of so low budget but yeah it it works and it, it set the the, yeah and it it set the it set the benchmark and it's obviously gone up from, because now you get these amazing computer generated graphics and whatnot. If, um, if that was how they'd done the next film and it just looked like that, would you still feel the same? If Bond 25 had that? Or is it just because it gets a pass on the fact that you know it's from the 60s? I think, yeah, it's because it's of its time. If if yeah. they, if I watched the newest one and they just had a woman dancing in front of an overhead projector, I'd be first going, where the hell did they get an overhead projector in 2019? But yeah, second, I'd, I'd probably feel a bit ripped off now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like the theme though, um, and I like the way it comes into. We spoke about it on the, the Bond music one, but you know, it has this sort of the, the from Russia with Love theme, and it sort of yeah, kind of transcends into the actual Bond theme. Yeah, I really like how it the Bond theme is well played in this film, and I love the way it kind of segues into that in the title sequence. Generally, I, I really love the score to this film. The they heighten the sense of danger the way they're using these drums or they've got steel drums or whatever. Mm. Um, Is this the you know, John Barry's 007 theme you mentioned when we were watching the film? Well, that's that. part of it. I mean, John Barry did the the score to the whole film, and he he really established himself as the one composer for many films to come after this. There's a lot. It seems to me I'm no like expert in string instruments. A lot of like harps, violins, um, it, these kind of descending sort of musical patterns when the danger appears you know what I mean um, which works really effectively I think the music it, the music was maybe a bit more genetic in Doctor No but um, they, it gave more of a heightened sense of danger in this one and then you're you're talking about the absolutely excellent pre-title sequence in this mm-hmm. this garden where Bond's getting stopped by Grant and it starts off there's no music and there's great sound effects you hear it's just like grasshoppers or crickets and um, like Bond and Grant pacing along the 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 garden, and then even like the train sequences, you know, I think even you know the kind of the clickety clack of the the railway line, um, the you know the steam locomotive sound effects adds to the the drama, I think mm-hmm. as well. The the sound, not just the music, but the sound effects as well. Yeah, no, completely agree, completely agree. Uh, I think we're nearly covered most of what we want to discuss. If there's anything else you feel. Hasn't been. Given well, we're going to do. Or? We're are we going to do our, our ratings yeah, this we'll time yeah. as well. Yeah, we'll uh, do that. Okay, let's move on to the rating then. Uh, Steve, you want to go first on this one? Yeah. Um. Last time round, I gave Doctor Noah three out of five. I think I'm going to stick on a on a trajectory, and I'm going to. Th- I think this is. Although it was a it was a different film, it was more complex. It had a lot more going on about it. I'm going to stick. I think it it didn't increase or decrease my sort of thinking of Bond, so I'm going to stick with a three for this one. Okay, three from Steve. Gordon, you've obviously seen this plenty of times. Yeah. Where does this one rate uh, from your point of view? Yeah, I, 
I think I can I see where Steve's coming from this similar level to Doctor No because in many ways I think it is a similar level that's why again like Doctor No I'm going to give it a 4 and you know obviously a big Bond fan myself but things I like about it um, the the plot the the way it's revealed towards the the end how all the pieces come together it's a bit more elaborate than Doctor No excellent Silent Assassin Red Grant uh, Connery Faultless perfect. In many ways, I would say it's a faultless film. That's why I don't want. There's not many faults I can level at it. But at the same time, I don't. I think it lacks maybe the swagger of you know some of the later Bond films, where you know there's more humour, bit more exoticness, a bit um, kind of grander scale music, and just a, a lot. Of, like I said, Bond evolves a lot, and this was this was a great Cold War thriller, and I'll. Um, so it's a, it's a four out of five for me. I'll do my um, George Lazenby voice for the next one. <laughs> uh, Fran, then? Um, yeah, um, I would um, stick with a three for the same reasons as Steve. That being said, I know that it's not official because we're only going to use one to five, right? But in my mind, I'd say the difference between this and Dr. No is if Dr. No was a straight up 3.0 this would be like a 3.6 or 3.7 or something in my mind. That's where it sits between 3 and 4. Do you I know think, what I mean? I think we're going to end up getting into percentages and decimals because yeah. it's it's difficult to keep going 3, 3, 3. Man, I, I almost gave this a 5. I mean, I, I was like, this is a 4.6 or something. There's such you know? a gulf between um, it's when you get to your as you've always said, Steve, a, a film that is absolutely terrible gets a one and it's very rare to give them out and fives are quite rare as well but everything in between it, I almost I, I want to I'm giving it a three for the record but I want to have it on the record as well that I, I think it's halfway to being a four that's how much more improved I think the film is compared to Doctor No yeah I agree with you um I gave this Doctor No a four and I think this is just marginally better than it but the originality of Doctor No is one of the reasons I think it it got there. I couldn't give this a three on that basis. I think it's still a four. Um, but it's for me, um, very similar. Um, in a, in a, in the sense of the quality, I think it's a very different film in 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 ways as well. And I like the majority of it. Um, the editing is maybe the points that we spoke about and and things like that where it falls short and. Whereas Doctor No fell short for a lot of it's how dated it was and how Bond spoke to characters and things like that. This one was um, maybe just on the sort of technical side of things, but you know, still enjoyable film. There was a lot to see. There was more facets of Bond that will become bigger in the next films that was introduced in this film with Q and things like that that I liked seeing. So that was all great. Yeah, I, I'm happy with this film. Um, yeah, so that's again similar rankings from the last one, three, four, three, four type thing. So this might be a pattern we'll see going forward. Uh, I imagine, <laughs> imagine not so much. Yeah, I think I think that's really covered it. Then there's not much more to say. We never really quickly spoke about Connery in this film. I suppose there's not much more to say on his performance. He plays the part, you know, as he should excellently. And um, we spoke about his accent. I suppose that was one of the things. Yeah, um, but as, as, as I think Gordon pointed out, pretty much. Flawless, yeah, um, faultless at the very least. All right then, yeah, good, great chemistry with Ken and B, I think, and um, 
first kind of slightly erotic scene sort of with um, with Tanya in the bedroom and that was actually the scene they used that as a template to screen test future Bond actors and future I read that. Bond yeah. uh, women Bond yeah. women and um, Connery yeah the um, Goldfinger will, that'll be an exciting one to move on to kind of chubs out a bit but he, he, he kind of um, he a bit more of a swagger about him as well um, but Connery was he was excellent yeah, um, from Russia with this will be interesting. Now we're about to hit one of the major, real, considered one of the best films in the in the franchise, Goldfinger. You know, it's again we've spoken about before. It's the it's the real blueprint for um, the majority of like the the word you use, swagger. That's a good word to describe it. I think going forward, and an element of Roger Moore's Bond starts to seep through in this sort of Sean Connery films from that. So I'm I'm really excited about that. We'll need to get that penned in, and uh, yeah, I think I think. That'll do it for this podcast. There's a, we'll sign off. Mission accomplished. Any other spy comments you would? Just, uh, just need to debrief for a couple of beers. There we go. That's it. That's yeah. it. Don't let this file destroy itself. That's the wrong In ten is. seconds or whatever it is. <laughs> right. You're it's fat. still a spy thing. Mission Impossible is kind of a rival to us. Well, <laughs> I'm imagining a, now just a, a sort of alternate universe where there's a Mission Impossible podcast being done by sort of rivals of us. Nah, I like yeah, it. I do love Mission Impossible. And he's like, no, you can't talk about that. Uh, I do love Mission Impossible. Do you? Maybe that's another. But maybe I'm, again, filmed in Scotland. The Leonard first one Moy was in some of it. Oh god! Was, oh, we're moving to Star Trek. Yeah, now, yeah, here we go. Oh, no. yeah, there you go. That's your away. first Star Trek reference. <laughs> Uh, thanks. Things don't change, really. All right, then. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys, for coming up. And Thank we're you. Thanks again. Now going to play James Bond again. Yes. Thanks. Bring it on. Catch you later. Bring on Bye-bye. Goldfinger. Oh, Gordon. It's a bit rude. You're going to lick some gold? Finger some gold? <laughs> Final words were finger some gold. The first bullet won't kill you, not even the second. <laughs> not till you crawl your knees and you kiss my foot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs>